0: My name is Scott Challoner, and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of this program will know, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, we're joined on today's show by Astrid Wynne, Sustainability Lead at Tech Buyer and Global Specialist in the Provision of Sustainable IT Solutions Astrid is also a chartered environmentalist and a full member of the IEMA. Um, Astrid, a very warm welcome to yourself today. And by all means, thank you for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure having you with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Real pleasure, and uh, of course you're joined on the show um, a little bit earlier on by uh, your colleague, Kev Towers, of course, and uh, you're of course another uh, member of uh, TechBuy's senior leadership team that'll be joining us on the show today. And the agenda will be covering becoming a sustainable business and the practical steps that business leaders can implement today to make their businesses more sustainable. So um, first and foremost, just talking about sort of sustainability, Astrid, and the sort of increased interest around it within the, uh, the business world. What do you think are sort of some of the real driving forces behind that sort of, you know, green drive, let's say?
1: Well, I think there's a growing awareness that we're in a bit of a pickle in terms of environmental change. COP26 was hosted obviously in the UK at the back end of last year. And um, we're seeing an increasing number of businesses making net zero claims and trying to figure out how to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, And there's a better awareness now that reducing your carbon footprint is not just about buying your way out of it, that you actually have to change the way that you operate in order to to reduce those carbon emissions in your own business and then the supply chain. So I think there's more knowledge, more understanding, more public will to do something. Um, And I think perhaps the pandemic had a part in that because people were more connected with their environment. Um, where they were um more um interested in the countryside and where we live and how protected kind of gave us a bit of a break, I think, to think about that um and that was one of the few silver linings that came out of that situation So that's kind of like the public perception over the last year, which I think has fed into the way that businesses are looking at sustainability,
2: mm.
1: but there are other drivers as well. For example, a growing trend towards green finance and investors caring about where they spend their money because the people who are investing in the funds care about where they're spending their money. And that's a big growth area. So you hear a lot about sustainability um, and a lot of the net zero conversation comes from the finance sector. Um, these are mainstream businesses, uh, large mainstream businesses who are saying that it makes a difference. Um, And then there's also a growing awareness that there are other benefits of having a sound sustainability strategy as well. So the Harvard Business Review has released information on how that relates to the attraction and retention of talent, for example, particularly young talent. Mm. So as you kind of go down the ages, there's more of an interest in sustainable business practice. Um, And then alongside that, you're having um, legislation and company reporting mechanisms aligning with the sustainability message. Um, So we've got the Streamline Energy and Carbon reporting in the UK for surprisingly small businesses comparatively. Um then there's the energy savings opportunity scheme. which I think I've got which is also surprisingly small companies. And then on the large side you've got things like um carbon reporting for huge companies where you're reporting not just your impact but also the risk of climate change and how you're gonna to adapt to that. Um so I guess that's the That's my take on the macro issues that are driving this increased interest in sustainability. Because, of course, everybody has to feed the large companies. So it's kind of driving this top-down change to the way that we're doing business, as well as potentially a bottom-up way of changing the way we do business by people's personal attitudes towards it.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. So would you say that to become a sustainable business, then fundamentally, these are the things that you should really be looking at?
1: I think it depends. Um, My view on sustainability is it's like everything else. You have to analyze what you actually do and look at the risks and opportunities that relate to that. I think carbon is a conversation that you can't escape from. So you have to have some kind of carbon plan or some kind of carbon strategy. Beyond that, there's an awful lot that businesses can do and potentially should do, and there are huge benefits of doing that, but you've kind of got to take it on a case-by-case basis. You've got to look at the type of business that you're operating and, and what makes sense for you. So it's like any other strategic approach, I guess.
0: Yeah exactly and so when it comes to sort of approaching these issues uh, how would you say that businesses and organisations can go about kind of dealing with these things that they need to be thinking about in order to make themselves more sustainable?
1: Well I think they can begin by having honest conversations and looking at what's within their control. Um, so our business for example, we have an offer which is an environmental benefit in a lot of respects because of the materials contained in the equipment that we process Um the fact that these um, materials are running out within decades that they're in hard to reach places they're in politically unstable or um yeah areas in some cases so we're we talking about cobalt mining that goes into electronics mm. um, and a lot of other critical raw materials as well. Um, so for us, our core business, if we increase that and do it in the right way, is a potential net environmental benefit. As long as we manage it correctly, we try and minimise our carbon that's used in that chain. But then we also have to look at the other impacts that we have outside of what we do in our facility. So for us, we'd be looking at what we pay for, what's within our financial control to influence. Mm. So it would be things like couriers. Can we have better courier options for taking the equipment out? Um, And then we'd be looking at um, ways that we can improve things in just a positive way, as in not minimising negative impacts, but creating positive change. Um, and for that, we take what's there already, so we take the connections within our own teams, and we look at charities that we can support or initiatives that we can support or advocacy issues that we can support um, to increase the benefits. Of what the business brings, um, so for us, we found the UN sustainability sustainable development goals very very useful for that mm-hmm. um, because it's a really bright positive framework that enables you to analyse what you're doing already and then uh, add an element of ambition into that. So we looked at our core business that which was taking. Um, product reducing e-waste basically by reusing that product
2: Mm.
1: and we put a target in against that and we doubled what we were expecting to do over the five years um, to create that reach Um, we're aware that our core products save money for education bodies and healthcare bodies around the world so we put a target in against that to increase the amount of savings that we were able to produce to these sectors, sorry, off these sectors. Um, And we also put targets in around that work that we do with schools and education bodies um, to try and recognise what was being undone already and then build on that so that the company has a direction in which to head but like if you're going to do things outside of your day-to-day job or do something on top of your day-to-day job, you do it in these areas because then it becomes a company mission, um, which enables us to channel our resources and make a bigger impact in that direction. I guess there are two ways of looking at it. First of all, you have to look at the risks to your business, what negative impacts are there in terms of carbon, in terms of noise pollution, in terms of potential environmental pollution, and then the opportunities to reduce those impacts. And then alongside that, look at something that's celebratory and that enables confidence building within the organisation so that you increase your positive impact. Um, For us, the the frameworks that we use on that are the ISO 14001, which is an environmental management system, and we think very carefully about the targets that we want to put in there so that they're relevant to our business. Um, we use carbon footprinting to try and analyse the impact that we're having in terms of carbon and reduce that. And then we use the global goals as an internal a program that enables us to have more people involved in sustainability and therefore make a bigger positive impact. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the UN Sustainable Development Goals.
0: Hmm. I say, I don't know them off the, the top of my head, but yeah, that is something I'm familiar with. Absolutely right. Yeah.
1: So there are 17 of them in total. And the advice in the sector is that nobody can make an impact on every single one of those 17 goals. So you select the ones that are most relevant to the type of business you are, to your customers Mm. and to your stakeholders. And then you also assess how much of an impact you can make on those goals. Um, So for us, we picked um, good health and wellbeing um, because we have quite a young um, team, at tech buyer, who like to run races. <laughs> carry out marathons and tough mothers and total warriors, all that sort of business, and they will do that in generally in aid of a health and well-being charity of some description, whether that's mind or um, children's cancer charity or um, a local hospice. So that was one of the, the the goals that we decided to support. Another one was quality education because we deal a lot with universities and schools and because it ties into the work that we do internally on developing research and working with research bodies. Um, And the last one was responsible consumption and production, which is goal 12. Um, That obviously relates to the type of business that we are, but it also enabled us to frame the work that we were doing outside of our core product. So packaging would be a big area of impact for us just because we ship so much. So focusing on the goal of responsible consumption and production gave us um, a direction to heading in that respect so that we could increase the amount of recycled content that we we're using in our packaging and also find ways of reusing packaging and have a packaging return system. Um, They're probably initiatives that we would have done anyway, but having a framework like that and a goal like that that's reported inside the company and outside the company is a great way of communicating what we're doing and why it's important. And so the UN Sustainable Development Goals are a great tool to use to do that, to keep everybody on track and and heading Mm -hmm. in the same direction so that you feel like you're making progress.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it just kind of shows what's realistic, isn't it? Because you mentioned the seventeen goals and it's pretty far fetched to suggest that, you know, you're going to be able to go out there and implement all of them and become a completely sort of one hundred percent sustainable business because it, it is very, very difficult to act completely self sufficiently in that sense and grow in a sustainable way. So you've got to kind of pick out what's relevant to you and what you can make the biggest impact with and obviously in tech buyer's case that sort of understanding um, sort of uh, your corporate carbon footprint, but also it's about kind of thinking differently about sort of the technology that you use as well. Um, and a lot of that is sort of looking at things like sort of e-waste, and the right to repair and that sort of thing. So what kind of steps have you been taking on sort of that side of things, Astrid?
1: Um, <laughs> we're, we're trying to advocate for change, I guess, um, one, of the, one of the problems I think with companies when it comes to sustainability is that there's a lack of confidence in how to begin or how to create effective change, especially with small and medium sized companies. I think you kind of feel defeated quite quickly. And when you I think of sustainability is trying to change the world for the better, that's a pretty daunting task. Um, and by celebrating the positive things that we um, did, it enabled us to realise that actually we did have something to say on fairly large issues, even though we were comparatively small. So um, the right to repair movement is. Uh, a grassroots movement that has been um, flowering <laughs> in the uh, in the EU legislation, in UK legislation, and even in the US. So, 34 of the 52 states in the US have right to repair legislation coming through. Traditionally, it's seen as a consumer issue. So, in America, they talk a lot about tractors because. Um, a lot of Americans feel connected with farming on quite an emotional level. They talk about the ability to repair tractors. The tractor repairs are not blocked um, by software updates. You don't have these huge pieces of machinery that are effectively dead because the software provider has not been able to give the updates to the person who's bought the tractor. Um, But it also applies to other things as well, like fridge freezers, um, washing machines, um, computers, laptops, phones. Um, um, And it's a response to an attitude that, it's a response to a situation in which people have felt that they're buying products but these products are closed boxes um that you don't have the right or the ability to tinker with, so I might buy a washing machine and I can't find a washing machine for person because the fan's broken or the uh, um, mechanisms are not working um mm-hmm. and therefore I have to buy a whole new washing machine um It's about trying to give people the ability to take that control of their items and then not waste this huge amount of equipment that's effectively going to landfill all over the world. So at the moment, I think we're on 53 million tons of e-waste globally produced every single year, and that's projected to grow up to 50 million Um, Sorry, 100 million tonnes by 2050, according to some reports, unless we change um, the way that we deal with these pieces of equipment. And the Right to Repair movement is about recognising that and saying, what does Right to Repair mean? Well, it doesn't just mean that we have the legal right to repair the equipment. We also are supported by the people who made the equipment to repair that equipment. So we need design guides, we need spare parts producing, we need advice on the tools to use, and we also need to make sure that when we repair that item, it still works because the software associated with it is updated and installed correctly. Um, So that's what a lot of the legislation is about at government level. What companies like ourselves are saying is that works doubly so in the business world. So people see consumer waste in a very clear way because it comes through their kitchen. But that is potentially dwarfed by the amount that businesses are wasting because they don't have the knowledge or expertise or confidence to have that equipment repaired or upgraded or refurbished or sell the equipment to a service provider who will repair it in house and then sell to another user, so that we have reuse not just within an organization but within a country or within a society. Um, we've made a business on <laughs> refurbishing equipment by supplying component level upgrades so that people can carry out. Um, Product life extension within their own business and we've done that very successfully over the past 15 years to the extent that we've grown from two people to over 250 um, and that I mean our financial growth I'm sure Kevin gave you a more detailed breakdown right of this but it's significant mm. it's like 20 to 30 percent year on year this shows that it's a viable option um, not just the businesses to have those repairs done, but also for the country to develop that sector, create jobs, and create economic growth. Um, So that's that's all, (laughs) it's a set of arguments that are all true, but Mm. a company of our size uh, is usually not confident enough to say publicly. Not confident enough to provide evidence to government inquiries, not confident enough to advocate for change in the industry press. Um, and I guess I'm telling you this because, because we recognised that what we did was beneficial and that we could make an impact, that gave us confidence to speak on these issues on much larger platforms um, than would be usual. Uh, A company of our size, it's a great confidence builder, I guess.
0: Yeah, it certainly is, and um, it's having sort of its ripples in the uh, the industry as well, because we're seeing sort of legislation, as we talked about, really sort of creeping in to regulate the climate risk of businesses. Obviously, at the moment, it's focusing more on the bigger firms rather than the smaller guys. So. Um, obviously, um, at the moment in the state, uh, we're seeing that um, obviously scope one, two and three legislation mm-hmm. that's now starting to be integrated into sort of really large businesses and they're having to report on their climate risk and, mm-hmm. and obviously sort of look at their sort of performance when it comes to sustainability. So is that something that we could see sort of really filtering into the uh, the UK?
1: I think so. I think that the UK is potentially ahead of the US with respect to climate Risk. I mean, the UK was the first country to adopt the task force on climate-related disclosures, mm. um, which happened recently, and that's the UK government saying it, rather than the financial institutions. So the US, it's Securities and Exchange Commission, so um, the people who ha- hold the companies' with, company reports with respect to investment. Um. So yes. I think that it's something that we're going to see increasingly in the UK. And although it's the large companies that are going to have to report on this in the first instance, it will have a knock-on effect on the smaller companies because one of the things that they'll have to do when they report on Scope 3, um, so um, maybe I should just give a quick, quick outline of what Scope 1, 2 and 3 are Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so scope one emissions are uh, greenhouse gases that we directly put into the atmosphere by burning things by um, running our cars for example so that's the direct emission into the atmosphere scope two covers indirect emissions that are caused by electricity generation so there are national averages of what the greenhouse gas mix will be in an energy supply for the UK versus the US and potentially different geographical regions within countries. Um, so that's scope two. That's your energy supply, basically your electricity. And then scope three covers pretty much everything else. So part of scope three will be business travel. Another part of scope tri- three will be Um, services, for example, courier providers. And another part of it will be the energy that it took to produce the items that we have in the business. So that could be servers, which are approximately a ton of embodied carbon in each server. It could be laptops, which is about 230 kilos, I think, from memory, of embodied carbon to produce, manufacture and transport a laptop first use. um, And then um, that's kind of the embodied carbon in the items. But Scope 3 also covers downstream emissions. So for a software provider, it could be the services that they provide, um, which make them money, which consumers use and have massive energy effects in the network. Um, So, yeah. When I download something, I don't just download it onto my computer. There's an energy cost at the data center, and then there's an energy cost in the networking from the data center to my device. Um, And there's an argument that the software providers should be responsible for that scope three emission because they're making money out of it. Um, These are some of the things that are covered by scope three, but when you look at your scope three risks, if you like, or what you're responsible for or what you have to report on. It's what you spend money on or potentially what you make money from. Um, Now, it's about upstream and downstream supply chains in that case, which means that if you are part of the upstream or the downstream supply chain for a large company, they are likely to ask you for your carbon tickets so they can add them into theirs and then make their report. So although smaller companies might not have to report now on Scope 1, 2, and 3, they may be asked mm. by their customers to report on that. And I think that's part of the rationale of asking people to report on Scope 3 is because it's a way of pushing that accountability down through the supply chain. Mm. Um yeah so i think that's where we are and that's kind of what we're going to see
0: increasingly
1: going forward
0: yeah absolutely so and um obviously with all of that in mind like there will be a lot of businesses out there that you know are buying into this circular economy idea and want to kind of go on the journey of making their businesses more green and more sustainable um so obviously to kind of put together an effective plan to make that happen I suppose one of the big things that you've got to be able to do when you're thinking about where you can cut your emissions down is really looking at that um, embedded carbon, let's call it, which sort of filters down through the system. So it's like it's when you are transporting supplies into the business and those are the kind of things that you might not necessarily think about straight away, aren't they?
1: Yeah, yeah. And also circular economy is a great way of measuring other impacts, not just carbon. Um, It's a great way of reducing waste for example, because what we're trying to get to with a circular economy is um, a change away from thinking of things as incoming product and waste and changing that to just thinking about material supply. So the definition is a system that's regenerative by design. Um, What that means in practice is that you should look at ways of using your waste as a feed for another product, whether that's in-house or whether that's with another company. Um, And the good thing about circular economy is when you start thinking about things in that way, you get to all sorts of fun and creative solutions. Um, So when you start reading about circular economy, you find out that coffee houses are, Keeping their um, used coffee grain to fertilize Mm. soil, which then feeds cows, which then they milk and then they put back in the coffee shop. So it's kind of like this, um, yeah, this trail of partnerships with other organizations to ensure that your waste is part of a closed loop or that your byproducts are part of a closed loop and that they don't just get dumped and not used as resources. And so when we're talking about circular economy for technology, um, a lot of what we're looking at is reusing or extending the product life of technology Mm. in order to avoid the mining of virgin materials um, in the supply chain because it's damaging. Um, And at the end of life, for electronics they're not easily recyclable in fact um current with current technologies you can't recover a hundred percent of the materials that are in our devices um if you send a laptop to be recycled traditional technology will um just crush and melt the laptop down and recover the materials at that melting point it's quite crude. There are higher value recyclers which will harvest the valuable components for resale and then shred and melt the rest. Um, and there are newer technologies on the horizon which mean that you can recover a wider range of materials. So you can use bioleaching, for example, to recover rare earths like cobalt and titanium. And there's pyrolysis as well, which is a kind of melting without burning technique, which enables you to recover a wider range of metals. At the moment, though, that's just not the case. When you send electronics for recycling, the rarer, more precious materials in them will be burned away by the traditional recycling process. So, because recycling's not there yet. For your technology, you have to extend that product life as long as you can, and that you can do that in all sorts of ways. So you can reuse equipment between departments. So, say a you know high-powered um, machine um, is no longer fit for purpose because it's been taken over by the next latest, greatest piece of machinery for your research department who's crunching numbers on genomes doesn't mean that that piece of technology can't be used by somebody who is just recording files, for example. So it's about reusing the equipment within your own organization and cascading the equipment down the use cases. So you start off um, with, you know the really really high powered equipment in the high powered departments and then you yeah, yeah, you cascade the asset um when you're doing that you might encounter problems like for example software updates which mean that you have to reconfigure your hardware so you'd need to understand that and then you would need to have the expertise to upgrade the relevant components and parts to make the new piece of software run on that old machine. Um, in reality, a lot of companies don't have the expertise in-house to do that, so you potentially be looking at service providers that have the knowledge and expertise to do that for you, or just sell them your old machines and then buy some new machines that have been upgraded. Um, and then, uh, yeah. Circular economy would also be at the end of life, seeking out the highest value of materials recovery for your redundant assets, if that makes mm. sense. So, yeah, yeah, if you've got something that's perfectly usable just for not not your organization, then donate it to somebody who can process that for a charity's use. Um, that would be your, your first level. The other thing is, look for recyclers or secondary market providers who will harvest the components um, that are reusable out of the equipment before it's sent for recycling so that you're recovering as much value as you can from that asset. Um, Yeah, that's kind of uh, the... That's circular economy for technology. Um, And there are also other higher values Systems that you could put in place. For example, if companies are still providing mobile phones for business use, think about just providing the SIM card. Some people use their home mobile machine Mm -hmm. and then they just swap the SIM card in and out. So it's a way of reducing um, your use of new equipment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to making a plan, to sort of aim at, to decide how you can sort of, you know, sort of buy into the circular economy and you can sort of increase your impact in a positive way. Um, there are lots of things to consider. Of course, there's the product life extension models we've talked about, sort of measuring your carbon input, not just directly, but also indirectly. Obviously, we refer to the, uh, the UN global climate goals and sustainability goals that you can look at to also give you a little bit of direction. But also, you know, where you maybe don't sort of have the expertise, of course, you've mentioned as well, looking outside the uh, the business to certain service providers. But you can also look to organisations such as the uh, the IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, of which you are a member as well, Astrid. And um, that organisation is active in sort of providing sort of sustainability training at the moment, isn't it? Which could benefit businesses out there that are looking to really make that change.
1: That's right. That's right the the organization itself runs membership from affiliate level, which is when you've just started on your sustainability journey um, right through um, to full member and decision maker um, level for the organization itself. that's an entire training program um, Tech by a, a corporate member of IEMA and we will be. Because we're a corporate member with a chartered environmentalist on the team, it means that we're qualified to give accredited training courses on this, um, which we will be doing for our own internal staff, um, and also eventually our customers and partners um, in the wider sector. It's a good solution to have an accredited course because it will give you a background and a way of Framing your thinking when it comes to sustainability um, and a way of viewing what you do through a sustainable lens, if you like. And, um, you know, one of the things that it will start by doing is laying out some of the things to be aware of um, for the workforce, for managers, for board members in the way that they approach their jobs. So for the workforce, it will be an awareness of what the risks and opportunities are for the business and for their area of operations. What pieces of legislation they need to be aware of when they are carrying out their jobs. You know what mechanisms are in in place to control pollution, for example, or environmental damage. And what systems you can put in place to manage your environmental risk. Um, and what sustainability means in general and then what it would mean for your company. So it's a really good way of outlining that and then taking your workforce through that thought process so that they come out the other end with a greater awareness of how what they do influences the environment and also the company's impact on the environment. Um, so that's something that we'll be—we are looking at for our internal teams. We've already got ten affiliate members signed up to start their journey. We've got our first batch of training beginning uh, in three weeks' time for our internal teams. Um, but we'd encourage all companies to look at this so that mm. they're aware of the issues, and so that when they start putting together a sustainability strategy. It's one that fits the broader issues so that um, when they put this in place and they start communicating with other people, with stakeholders, with government, uh, with other organizations, that they're covering the whole range of issues that they need to be dealing with.
0: Absolutely right. And obviously, Tech Buyer is um, a fantastic model to follow in its own right, of course. Not only have you talked about how the business has essentially been built on sustainability and on the circular economy, and uh, we talked about all the work that you've been doing as well, and that's not gone unnoticed because in the, uh, the last couple of years, no less, you've been recognized with two quite huge accolades, um, Circular Economy Organization of the Year by IEMA, no less, two <laughs> years ago and also the Sustainable IT um, Company, most sustainable organisation of the year at the UK IT Industry Awards just last year as well. So I think it's fair to say that Tet Buyer is making incredible strides in sustainability, and I suppose that's uh, going to be uh, the case um, long into the future as well.
1: I hope so. I mean, it's it, yeah, they're, they're fantastic things to have. <laughs> Awards, it, it's great to be recognised um, by people outside the company for what we do Um, and um, you know quite impressive organizations as well Um, and it's an amazing confidence builder and thank you to everybody at the company that put in the work day in day out to make things better for us and I would hand on heart say that we won these things because a lot of people in the company spend an awful lot of time thinking about how we can make things better with respect to sustainability. I'd say that as a group of people, we, you know, we're encouraged to make things better in a lot of areas, but people take time out of their weekends um, to go to Climate Action Festivals. People put together tech bottle pits to demonstrate to kids what obsolescence means <laughs> you know why why we talk about things becoming obsolete in the tech sector people put together thoughts and ideas word searches crosswords um for magazines that go out to kids people contact art galleries who are wanting to do exhibitions on e-waste people you know commissioned uh, bike made of electronic waste um, from a local artist to raise awareness before the Mount Rushford, about a year before the Mount Rushford happened in the press, Mm. and carted that round all the tourist spots in North Yorkshire as part of a publicity campaign to support the bike race that was coming through, the UCI bike race, which is a big deal in the cycling world. Mm. So a lot of our company members are creative and committed, and um, go way of, above and beyond what they have to do in order to make things work, to advocate, educate, to change, um, to celebrate, and it's just really lovely that all that effort's recognised by people outside the company. Um, because yeah, I just yeah it makes you really
0: proud to work there mm. it is exactly it's a huge source of pride and i suppose it's now the uh the real hope that and the confidence that gives you that you know tech buyer and everybody sort of working within the business can act as sort of real trailblazers and an example to others as well to you know join the journey and sort of get on that sustainability trail because as we've talked about right at the beginning obviously with the uh, the covid situation and all of the talk around cop 26 um there's a lot of um, sort of momentum now in the, um, sort of trying to deal with the climate emergency. There's a lot more urgency about it. And we need sort of all the help we can get to kind of get on that trail, don't we, and really head to where we need to be.
1: Yeah, I agree. And also we'll work together to get there. I mean, that's another thing that I'm particularly proud of, to, to work for TechBuyer because it, it, as a company, we're quite happy about working with other people. Getting other people involved and you know partnering other organisations to think differently and to, um, celebrate positive actions and drive the conversation. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I think it's really important, though, mm. um, that kind of partnership element and confidence to go out there and meet new people and have these discussions is something that's infectious and it creates a virtuous circle. I think the more that we do that, the more we get out there and we try and help um, and improve our little corner of the world. Um, It draws people who are interested in, in that way of doing business and that way of working to the company. Um, Mm. so when I first joined the company there were 93 people who worked there there are 250 now and I think that a lot of the people that we have recruited have really got on board with the idea of going out there and, and being creative and enthusiastic about positive change and that's quite an achievement and it also means that the people who work with us Research bodies um, are also like-minded in that respect. So it allows you to amplify um, your actions, I guess, by having an attitude that attracts partners who have similar deals and aspirations.
0: Absolutely right. And it is interesting that you talk about kind of that creative thinking and that sort of innovative streak, because that's certainly something that we're going to be talking about in the uh, the next installment of uh, this uh, Tech Buyer podcast uh, series, where we'll be joined by Rich Kenny, the Managing Director at the Interact division of the company, and also Research and Sustainability uh, Director within Tech Buyer. So certainly looking forward to, uh, to speaking with him about that. And um, also to anybody um, sort of who's listened in today and, you know, may feel impassioned about the issues that myself and Astrid have discussed, um, a good port of call to look further at TechBuyer and its work and maybe look for some help to help your business start to uh, really trailblaze in this area. Uh, TechBuyer.com, I think, is your website, isn't it, Astrid, and a good port of call to start with absolutely fantastic and uh, for now astrid of course um it's been absolutely amazing and incredibly enlightening welcoming you onto the uh, the podcast today to discuss these issues because it is an urgent situation it is incredibly important and hopefully to those uh, sort of listening in if even one person feels like they're ready to join the journey hopefully you know there's something good to come out of this and thank you for your time and um agreeing to do this it's been a real pleasure having you with us
1: okay thank you very very much for having me
0: And to all of the listeners tuning in as well, I do hope that you thoroughly enjoyed the interview uh, with uh, myself and Astrid Wynn from Tech Buyer today. And just a reminder as well, that if you feel that your story has its own, uh, your business rather, has its own sustainability or any story to share with us here at the Leaders' Council, then you too can apply to be on the programme via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply to share that story with us. For now, you have been listening to the Leaders' Council podcast with your host, Scott Chaloner, today. Everybody, please do take care and goodbye.